As Daniel read for us, we are continuing our way through the book of Mark, uh, looking specifically at Mark 10, 13 through 31 this morning, looking at the end of that passage, verses 23 through 31. So if you have your Bible uh, open to Mark 10, uh, or on the top of your handout, you'll find it there also. Let me read for us again, Mark 10, starting at verse 23 this time. Mark 10, starting at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, left us uh, with a account of Christ in life and ministry, uh, and not just through one book, Father, but through all four of the Gospels. Thank you, Lord, that you have not uh, just left us narrative history that we might know the truth of what has happened, but you have left us epistles and prophecy, uh, that you have left us the Old Testament along with the New, that you have given us all we need for life and godliness in knowledge through your word, in understanding by your spirit, in comfort and affection and love, and care, and growth through your body, by your word, because of your spirit, and because of what you have accomplished in Christ. I pray, Father, as we know these great truths, uh, that you would help us to not be those who just recite them, but depend upon you, live in them, and trust them, that you would be glorified through our lives. I pray you would give clarity to my words this morning. I pray that you would give hearts willing to not just hear, uh, but to trust and depend and do the word. All because of your grace in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me remind you of the context of where we are in Mark. We are in a long teaching section of Jesus. And as we've seen Jesus teach on divorce, Uh, Then as Jesus turns to his disciples, instructing them on, again, what does it mean to be a disciple? 
What does it mean to follow Christ? What should it look like? And the language used here to communicate that is, what should it look like for one who expects to enter the kingdom of God? And he says, one who receives the kingdom, or you could also say, and we'll see today, uh, the kingdom and the gospel are actually used very interchangeably in speaking of the reception of the kingdom. Anyone who receives the kingdom like a child are the ones who enter the kingdom. If they do not receive it like a child, and we looked at last week Jesus' contrast or the, the contrast between these verses of one, a child who would receive the kingdom how? Not stating that a child receives the kingdom, but the child's reception of anything is one of humble dependence on someone else. It is the function of a child. They are by nature humble, not in a human sense of, oh, I just think so little of myself, as they are weak and needy and aware of that, and they are dependent. They cannot accomplish on their own. And Christ communicates that to them, and and we looked at even in the book of Matthew, it clarifies and says that directly, that anyone who receives, anyone who does not receive the kingdom like a child in humility will not enter the kingdom. Then we saw a stark contrast of that, contrasted with the rich young ruler who knew the right questions to ask. He seemed to be the one that has it all together and has everything he could want, and who didn't depend on God. Though he was dependent upon God, as all are, there was no humility, no dependence. He was not looking to receive the kingdom. He was requesting eternal life. His question was the right question, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus' answer made clear for him, eternal life is found being dependent and completely resting your hope in God. And that was not a response he was looking for. He wasn't looking for what does it mean to, to gain eternal life. He was truly asking the question, how can I keep what I have forever. He was concerned about his power, his prestige, his possessions. He was not concerned about his eternity. He assumed in one sense he had already received the kingdom of God. He assumed that he had all that communicated God's blessing, all that communicated what he needed and that he was good and he stood right And when Christ uses the moral law and the man's own words, as he says, good teacher, and Jesus asks him, who is good but God alone? He misses the hint that he is not good. Only God is good. He misses the hint that Christ is good because he is God. And he hears only a list of moral commands to which he essentially responds, I'm good. I've done that. And Jesus reiterates to him again that only God alone is good, as the man will not follow the Messiah because he does not want to lose his life. He does not want to deny himself. He does not want to follow Christ. He wants to ensure that his abundant life, as he assesses it, remains. 
And so as we saw these contrasting verses of of those who receive the kingdom of God like a child or those who do not, who refuse to seek it in humility, to see it and receive it in humility, but in arrogance, assume I am good enough. I have done all the right things. And I have no need to depend on God. Jesus goes on to communicate to his disciples as the man is leaving the difficulty of entry into the kingdom of God. Jesus immediately shifts to address his disciples. And we see in Luke, he shifts as the man is still present, as the man is leaving. Right. It says he's sad because Jesus has said this and Jesus moves in to what is really a pleading conversation for him to recognize And it appears the man doesn't. He just continues to leave. But as Jesus communicates to his disciples, we see in verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And now his disciples' responses were not just amazed, they were exceedingly astonished. They said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. How difficult is entry to the kingdom of God? We see in verses 23 through 27, it is so difficult, it is impossible. It is not possible for man to enter the kingdom of God. He cannot do it as he is on his own. The difficulty is expressed as greater for the rich. There is greater difficulty for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And in our mind, it's confusing of, well, how is it greater for the rich if it's impossible for everyone? Isn't it just impossible? Yes, it is just impossible, but also the hurdles of the rich to be humble are more difficult to find humility, to embrace humility. And we would say, even after you're saved, there is a burden in the rich that they could expect and assume a dependency on themselves, not a humility on God. There will be greater adversity, greater difficult in that aspect. But that's not Jesus's primary point here, is that it's going to be harder for rich people than poor people. We see that the primary point is clarifying for the disciples, those whom you think are more easily saved. It is impossible for them to do it on their own. The disciples are astonished. They're in shock because as Jesus makes it clear, it is impossible for a rich man to be saved. They, they can't come to terms with that. How could he say that? The disciples are amazed by this, these words. And then when Jesus makes it even more clear, his, their question is, if not the rich man, who could be saved? If it's not easy for him to get in the kingdom, how could anyone get in the kingdom? For us, I think as we are good Bible students, we assume that. 
right? We sometimes miss the statement that Jesus is saying it is impossible for anyone to be saved, and we just assume it's really hard for rich people uh, because we've heard this text and other texts that make clear the difficulty of the wealthy. Uh, We assume, along with the Psalms, that the wealthy often rise up uh, against others. Uh, The wealthy often abuse their wealth. And so it's easy for us to think, oh, of course not. They could not be saved. But we're not thinking in the context of Israel. Uh, We're we're thinking in our modern context. We're thinking of knowledge we already have from the Scripture. Uh, We're not considering the context of these men who, for the majority, were uh, blue-collar, hard-working men where they're looking at the rich who are a very small class of people uh, who are, in our terminology, white-collar, right? Or more so than that, they're estate owners, and they're doing very little work in the means of physical labor. Their burden is managing estates. And so the assumption in Israel, if we're functioning under a law, we're functioning under the thought and the failure to recognize that sacrifice is to tell us we are not right before God, but assuming sacrifice makes us right before God. And Israel's looking to say, oh, those who make the best sacrifices are doing what? They're paying for their sin the best. And so the assumption is if you're the rich, you don't have to settle for a dove for your sacrifice or maybe a lamb that's without most blemish. You could buy the greatest of lambs. You could use your money to do the greatest of things. If you're getting into eternity through good works, well, you're the wealthy. You have the most access to good works. You could give and you could do anything to accomplish that. And so the assumption of the disciples are those who have wealth, not only have they had the display of the favor of God because their wealth and their prosperity, but they are able to use that to earn their salvation. They're free to pursue it. And so as the disciples hear this, they're shocked in a way that I don't think we are. Uh, we, We really don't really consider Oh, it's easy for rich people to be saved. Uh, we assume yeah, it's, it's difficult. Uh, and in doing, in doing so, we, we miss Jesus' point in that as they're assuming, oh, it, it should be easy for rich people to be saved because God is declaring them righteous. And they're shocked that he would say they couldn't. Jesus clarifies, I- I'm not saying only difficult for those who are rich. He says it is difficult for the humble also. Jesus uses that same contrast. He says it is difficult for the rich man to get into heaven. And then look again at verse 24. He says, and the disciples are amazed. But Jesus said to them, children, you who are humbled, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. In the disciples' shock, Jesus moves to bring clarity. And he brings clarity through a statement. He not only concludes, yes, it is difficult for the rich, those that they would assume it's easy to be saved, but it is also difficult for the humble, the children. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he states the difficulty. How difficult is it? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, many have tried to take this illustration, and maybe, like me, you grew up in a church that took this illustration. I didn't grow up in the church. Specifically, my growing up was bouncing from church to church and not really ever faithful in a, a particular church. Uh, I didn't have a love for Christ. I had a humil- humility and dependence on my parents, like all children, and I went where they took me. But there was no love for Christ. But as I heard taught in a specific church that we hopped to one Sunday, he said, what this means is it's really hard. You're really going to have to humble yourself. Because in Israel, they would have this thing called a camel gate, called the eye of a needle. And you'd have to strip your camel down and take everything off of it and get it on its hands and knees and get it to crawl through this gate that it could barely fit through and take all your stuff. And so they expressed, Jesus isn't saying it's impossible. He's saying it's super hard, right? There is no biblical evidence of a camel gate that exists. I don't know when that illustration came into the church, uh, but it's used by the church. And it's a foolish illustration. If you just read the text, Jesus makes clear what he means by the camel. It is impossible. He doesn't mean it's extremely difficult and you're going to really have to humble yourself to accomplish this. He means for man, this is impossible. He's not talking about a gate. He's talking about a needle, right? And I was hoping I could get a camel and a needle this morning, you know, and we could get like that type of church where I'm like, here's the illustration, guys. Daniel, run that camel up here and hold the needle. It would have been super fun, but uh, I found out camels spit, and I didn't want them spitting at people, so we we canceled it. No, we didn't even try to make it happen, because you can picture, that's the beauty of Jesus' illustration, is he is taking things that are common to them, and he's taking what actually, uh, there is some record of a saying that people would use at the time, but they would say, it's easier to move an elephant through an eye of a needle, uh, which... I don't know if that makes it harder. It remains impossible, and that's the statement. Uh, But Jesus using the largest animal that they would see regularly, it's easier to push a camel. In case you're not sure, a camel's like like this tall, two big humps on its back, long neck, kind of like a weird-looking horse. And a needle, uh, it's, it's like a little piece of metal with a tiny hole that is hard to get even a thread through. You have to like lick it and then try 15 times and then say, Grandma, can you do this for me? And then she, she doesn't do it for ability. She just does it out of practice. She just, there you go. Camel, needle. Hard to get a thread through. Impossible to get a camel through. Right? Jesus is making a clear point. With man, salvation is impossible. It is impossible for man to enter the kingdom of God. As Daniel reminded us this morning from Romans, there are none who do good. Jesus is proclaiming to the rich young ruler, recognize only God is good. Only God is righteous. Only God is perfect. And it is impossible for those who are imperfect and not only imperfect, but evil and rebellious to enter into the presence of God, to dwell in his kingdom. Romans three nineteen through 26 states it. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law 
so that every mouth may be stopped. For the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As Israel looked, and the disciples assumed, look at this rich young man, he's the one that should be saved. He has met the requirements of the law. Paul clarifies what is clear in the Old Testament. The law was never there to make someone righteous. The law declared your unrighteousness. Because Israel never met the law. That's why again and again they went to sacrifice. To remind them, to declare to them, though you know the truths of God, you cannot meet the truths of God. And you need a living testimony against you to make clear to you. And that's what sacrifice was. The blood of bulls and goats never atoned for sin. They declared the truth of sin again and again and again. One of my favorite passages in Joshua 24, and Joshua goes and tells the people, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord, and you must decide this day what you do. And all of the people say, we are going to serve the Lord. And what is the conclusion of Joshua? Good. You can do it. No. He says, you will not be able to. And today, these stones and the sun and the moon stand against you as reminders. You cannot. The Old Testament screams throughout. They must humble themselves. They must depend on God. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. But they were confused. Confused often even like us. Who start to assess that we are saved because what we do. That God accepts us because what we've accomplished. Because where we are. We think that our standing in eternity and our eternal security is resting on the function and the works in which we do. Not on the Father who has made all things possible through sending the Son who gave Himself as a sacrifice that we would be made righteous. And that's exactly where Romans 3 starts again in 21 with the contrast. The law made sin known, but it will never justify any human being. But now, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they declare it, they reflect there will be righteousness in the Messiah the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He says, God put Christ forward as propitiation, the payment of satisfaction that declares that this is finished. It is done 
You are freed from this sin. How? By the death of Christ, His blood that is received by faith. And this shows God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, in Him as God who overlooked the sins of Israel, who declared to them from sacrifice again and again, He would show them just by faith in a coming Messiah. And for the present time, that now in knowing the righteousness of God, we look at Christ, knowing that we are saved through Christ. It is by His blood and His blood alone that we are saved, so that God might be both the just, He is righteous, He is good, only He is good, and the justifier, the one who makes man good through Christ. While salvation is impossible for you, it is possible through God. And salvation also is difficult. Jesus is, is not being dishonest when he says it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult for a humble child to enter the kingdom of God. The difficulty is not lost. Let me remind you of a couple places that help us see that. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It feels foolish to not go to 1 through 10 because you just feel like you have to every time you're there, but we're just going to go to 8. We're going to have some self-control this morning and go to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And after he's declared your sin and who you are and that it's by Christ alone that you're saved, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does it say? Salvation is by God alone. And he repeats and emphasizes again, this is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. Emphasizes again, this is not a result of works. Why? No one may boast that they accomplished this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So why are you saved? Because you are the work of Christ. Your work, that work of who you are, that you are now righteous in Christ, is not your own doing. It's not what you've done. It is the work of Christ that has recreated you. You've been born again, made a child, humbled before Him. And for what reason? Look at the verse. For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Salvation is not by your works, but it results in works which you participate in because God has prepared those for you. There is a labor or a work. There is difficulty for those who are entering because they've received, they are entering the kingdom of God. 
They are those who have heard the gospel. We talked about this last week. The reception of the kingdom is to hear the gospel, to know the truth, and you then are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Your hope is in that. You are waiting to return to your heavenly home, to the new heavens and the new earth, to the eternal kingdom. It's easy for those who are rather, it is those who will not receive. Let me just state it the way it said rather than trying to make it up my own. Those who do not receive the kingdom of God like a child, received now in humility by the grace of God, will not enter the kingdom of God. And so those who will not receive or have not received in humility will not enter. But as you are those who have received in Christ the kingdom, you then are citizens who will move into the kingdom. You will forever be his eternal life in the real Free from sin, free from death, free from pain, free from sorrow, free from tears, will be yours. But that entry will be difficult, not in earning, but in living. Philippians 2 says it a different way. While Ephesians says, we walk in the works in which he has prepared for us. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, you are people who always obey. He's telling the Philippians, which is a lot of praise for them. You are a faithful people. As you have always obeyed, do so now, not only in my presence, not only when I'm there, but when I'm absent. What's Paul saying? Don't let this be eye service because the Apostle Paul is here, right? Don't let your behavior be changed because you believe a holy man is among you. Like I've had many meetings. You know me. My holiness is because of Christ, not because of Jake. The closer you know me, the more aware you are of that. But I've had many times where I'm meeting with someone, not necessarily like members of our church, but someone visiting or someone I met somewhere else and I meet with them. And man, they are uncomfortable before me. And it's not because I'm ugly and look homeless. It's because they're assuming this is the holy man. This is the pastor, reverend, minister of the gospel. I must be holy before him. I'm sitting talking to a young man in his 20s and the dude's stumbling over every word he's saying. And I just asked him, hey, bro, do you swear a lot? He's like, yeah. I'm like, and you're trying really hard not to swear in front of me? Yeah. Because his pauses were very clear. It was like he was editing himself in conversation because he doesn't know how to talk without explicits coming out of his mouth. And he's assuming I'm holy because I'm a man who doesn't use explicits as fillers. And he's trying to be holy like I am before me. In my presence, he's seeking to be obedient to what he thinks holiness is. And what Paul is saying is, don't be holy just because I was there. There's a greater reason to be holy. There's something more fearful, more incredible, more of an example, and more empowering than the fear and the example of Paul. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. That terrifies and relieves. It gives the same kind of tear or pressure that a young man might feel sitting in front of me thinking, this dude's so holy because he doesn't cuss. And I've got to conform to that manner of holiness. He is so confused. But Christian, you know the holiness of God. You know how righteous he is. You know where you stood before him. And so as you live out your salvation, as you labor in it, you labor with fear and trembling. You labor in difficulty and toil. You labor in knowing you can't do this perfectly. And why do you do so? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. It's terrifying because you, you know the holiness that is with you. You know the righteousness that is with you. And you, maybe not like that young man, must know also, how does he do this in you? How does he work and will for you to live out the fruit of salvation? How does he bring you through this difficulty? In anger? In wrath? In frustration? In hatred? No, look at what it says. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His pleasure. For His good pleasure. He rejoices to work in you. Much like when you probably meet with other people and they find out, oh no, you're one of those holy people. And they assume now you're here to judge me. You're here to condemn me. But you, because you know the glory of Christ, you know that you have been forgiven. You know your penalty has been paid. Though your presence might cause awkwardness and difficultness and frustration for them because they see their sin and they say, I don't want to be like this. And how did this person become holy? Your feeling toward them is not condemnation. It's desire for the gospel. It's love and grace. You don't want them to be condemned. You want them to be conformed to the image of Christ. You want them to have the good gift that has been given to you. You want the impossible for them that you know only God can do. And if he is the one that's done it, he is the one that saved you, he will carry you through that difficulty of having the holiness of God as yours, despite the sinfulness of your own life. But it will be difficult. It will be uncomfortable. But that discomfort is not a matter of you receiving the kingdom. It's a function of you entering it. He has made you holy. He has made you righteous. And you, if your hope is in Christ, as the gospel is yours, will enter the kingdom of God. Not because you're rich, not because you're poor, because you're Christ's. And that's exactly where the, this account of the gospel goes. Because we see Peter's confusion after this, right? Peter hears that only the rich man can enter into heaven. And what is Peter's, or rather, the rich man can't. In Peter's mind, the rich have it easiest. So what's Peter thinking? 
Dude, I'm a fisherman that puts my foot in my mouth all the time. I got to prove this. He says, Jesus, we left all to follow you, right? He's thinking, this rich guy wouldn't leave everything. And Peter says, Jesus, I left my fishing business to follow you. For years, Peter left his family to follow Christ. As he's coming back again and again, and they're there often in Peter's house. But Peter has left his livelihood, his sustaining, all that he has to follow Christ. And he says, look, Lord, we have followed you. What does Jesus say? He says, Peter, you idiot. Sorry, I'm not supposed to say that kind of thing. Do you not know that you can't earn this on your own? You think following me is going to get you this? You think because you left mother and father and child that you're going to, you just get entry into my kingdom? No, Peter. It's impossible. Didn't you hear it's impossible? Only God can save you. Stop trying to earn this on your own. No. No, he doesn't condemn Peter for saying, hey, look at my life, Lord. Look, look what we've done. I followed you. What does he say? He comforts Peter. He comforts Peter. He is honest with Peter and comforts him. What does it mean that you're following Christ? Peter's not following Christ perfectly, but he's following Christ in faith. He's humbling. He's, he's bringing up the things that he is humbled in. And, and we always struggle with that, right? If I'm stating how humble I am, how humble am I? It's super confusing. Jesus doesn't go on a tirade with him about that. Jesus comforts Peter. As Peter has followed him and does not do perfectly, and Peter is now trying to say, hey, look at everything I've done. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. Jesus declares to him, that his end is eternal life, and in the age to come, eternal life, right? He says that any who follow me, and states a whole bunch of things they will receive in this age, and then says, and in the age to come, eternal life. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God, and the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He comforts Peter that you will have eternal life in Christ. You will have eternal life. But he doesn't comfort him only with eternal life. What does he say? No one. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands. Jesus goes beyond the leaving of possessions. He says, when you have lost the closest, the most comforting, the most securing, the most intimate of things in life. In Christ, those will be yours, Peter. 
And Peter and the apostles not only heard this, but saw it. As Peter is probably the author of this book through Mark, Peter is recounting these stories and knowing his statements. And Peter is also the one who proclaims the gospel and watches the birth of the church. Mothers and fathers and sons and daughters coming to Christ. And the church had all things in common, in love and in faithfulness to one another. They functioned as mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers to one another. And Jesus makes clear, anyone who leaves the comfort and the security of earth for my sake will have comfort and security on earth along with persecution. Because their comfort and their security is not the things of earth, but they will be comforted and secure on earth because of Christ's care for them, because of the church. Many of you have lost mothers and fathers to death. Many of you have lost mothers and fathers because their hope is not in Christ. Sisters and brothers who refuse to follow Christ who deny the name of Christ, who ridicule you because of Christ. And I know many of you because you have told me time and again, you find that a hundredfold in the church. Many of you have had parents who loved you and cared for you, sisters and brothers who did, and yet they cannot, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, compare to the blessing of the church. Many of you who even have good family, I've heard you confess again and again, the church feels far more like my family than my family. Why? Because Christ is faithful. Because he unites beyond what man can unite. Because the intimacy of Christ goes far beyond the intimacy of blood. Goes far beyond the commonality of growing up in the same house. It goes far beyond ownership of intimacy together. It is an intimacy of eternity. And his comfort is as you will come in the coming age to eternal life. You will be comforted in this life, Peter. There is no cost too great to following Christ. And there is no following of Christ that comes without comfort. And he comforts Peter with that. You could say this is just for Peter, right? This isn't for, uh, for everyone. You would be wrong uh, because in verse 29 he says, There is no one who has left. He's not speaking just of the apostles. But to make it even more clear to you, if you look at Matthew 19, 28 through 30, Jesus comforts the apostles in a way that he doesn't comfort everyone generally. In Matthew, he says first to Peter that, that Peter doesn't record in Mark, uh, but Matthew recorded. He says first to the apostles, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In Matthew 19, he comforts the apostles with the coming kingdom of Christ. And he says, these apostles will reign with him over the tribes of Israel. 
He says, when the Son of Man returns, James, uh, wait, Peter, John, James, Bartholomew, you who no one knows, you will reign with me. When the Son of Man comes to his throne, you will reign with him, judging the tribes of Israel. We see this in Revelation 20, verse 4, in the millennial kingdom. We see it again in the eternal kingdom as the new Jerusalem comes down. There are gates and there are foundations. And on the foundations are the names of the tribes of Israel. And on the gates are the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Uh, reverse that, rather, sorry. The gates are the tribes of Israel. The foundations are the apostles of the Lamb. Jesus comforts them specifically with his plans for them. And then comforts and everyone who has left. Everyone. Not just apostles. Not just those then. Just everyone. And so though he comforts them with his eternal plan, which also should bring comfort to us, he is not comforting just the apostles in his eternal plan. He is comforting all his people in his eternal care. And then he makes this statement. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Maybe like me, you have frequently taken this to mean uh, those who have wealth and progress and all of those things, they are first now, and they're going to get theirs in eternity. They'll be last. And those who are impoverished and poor and uh, belittled in this life, they'll get theirs in eternity and be the greatest. It is not your status of earth that is defining your greatness in the kingdom of God. Your entry into the kingdom of God, he's stating here, is equal. There's none who are first, none who are last, all who are only given by the grace and the generosity of God. And I would say that because if you want to look in your Bible at Matthew 20, in Matthew 20, Jesus immediately gives a parable after this statement. And the parable is that he has hired those to work in his vineyard. And he says those who came in the beginning of the day, he promised a denarius, a day's wages, and they agreed. And then it says at hours following, he hired more. And at the end of the day, he paid them all a denarius. So there are people who worked for one hour and were paid a full day's wages. And people who worked a full day and were paid what they agreed, a full day's wages. But the people who saw the last getting paid first, and they got the same wages as the ones who worked all day, what are they? They're bitter. They say, why would you pay them who just came at the end of this with the same wages you paid me? And the statement of the master of the vineyard is says, are you embittered by my generosity? Are you embittered by my care, my grace? There is a pointing to those who first knew Christ. There is no position in Christ of superiority. Those who were first, you could say the Jews, could look and say, how could the Gentiles just be brought into this covenant? How could they just be put in as part? And Jesus is declaring to the Jews, this will come about, that the last will be first, and the first will be last. The people of Israel will recognize that God has brought the Gentiles into the covenant. That salvation is equal, not by works. It's not about how old you were when you got saved. It's not about how long you've served for Christ. The work and the labor of Christ is because of the goodness and the generosity of Christ, and the payment is the same because of Him.
Your hope is not that you will outachieve someone else in prestige and wealth or in poverty so that you can have more in eternity. Your hope is in Christ, who is gracious and has offered the free gift of salvation to all and will function in generosity and care to all who are his, both in this life with persecution and in the next with eternal life. That is the hope of the gospel. It is not a hope that you must do something to be saved. It is a declaration of salvation is by grace through faith alone because of Christ. And you will only be saved in such. I want to point you to the application page. And I thought it would be helpful to put many verses there this morning that would help you. And I put titles there to kind of direct you in your study of those verses on warnings to the rich and and what we must know as we are those who are rich on earth, lest we come to think uh, that we must follow a gospel of poverty and sell all that we have and forget that God is good and generous, or lest we come and think we must put our hope in job and finance and retirement and insurance and cars and houses and clothing and vacations and the uncertainty of riches. And so I want to encourage you as you live through the difficulty of salvation in laboring and seeing your life as unholy before him, he is kind and he has comforted you with warning, with clarity, with hope, and with how to live as the wealthy. So we're not going to review those this morning, but they're there for you on the back of your handout.